This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Yeah, there's it, the the turkey situation is good right now. There must have been a pretty good patch last year. Uh, I probably saw freaking twenty five times. But anybody listening, uh, it's too late now. By next year, they'll have tanked. So, where at the good the good old days were yesterday. Alas, yeah. oh, and, oh! I live in Montana, Brandon. Uh, have you been out? You live in Michigan, right? Yeah, we opened on Saturday. Did you go out? Uh I did not. My son did, and he got his bird in the. I call it the backyard, but it's on our property. We've got ten acres of. Uh, we live on ten acres. That's right in along a tree line, and there's some open farm fields and. Uh, called him in and made quick work of it. You know, Michigan turkey. So great big gelatin chested, dripping candle headed. There were actually three times. There were three times that came in with one hen. So, I mean, I don't know how with the detail we, we get into it, but Michigan's got a, I feel we've got a really healthy turkey population. And I mean, the only thing I can attribute it to is we are only allowed to shoot one bird in the spring. Hmm. That's how it is in Utah as well. Yeah. And the, and the bird there's, I don't know exact numbers, but I want to say there's 50,000 tags that are available to be sold every year in Michigan. I think the most that's ever been sold is 35,000. And when you look at the harvest numbers, we're up there as far as total birds killed. And we don't hear, hear any of the gripes about, you know, the pressure hunting pressure or anything like that. It's, you know, the, Back in the 60s, I think the turkey population was almost extinct in the state of Michigan. And now we've got healthy numbers. Yeah. Where I grew up, you know, we got, I, I, I grew up in Muskegon and there's a little town north of where we grew up, where I grew up uh, called Baldwin. Have you ever been there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was the only place when I was a little kid in the 70s and 80s that we saw turkeys. I never saw them when I was a kid. I'm 41. And I don't think I started seeing turkeys until 20 years ago. You'd start to see them. Now, if there's any open field, like we live right by a nuke plant and they got all the easements for the, the power lines. So you go out and drive around anywhere. There's uh, trees next to the power lines that they clear out, you know, about a hundred yards wide. There's turkeys in every single one of those fields. Mm. So there's, and they can't hunt them. Um, so there's good reproductive habitat for them. And now you see them all over the place. I mean, it's, it's really, is kind of cool and not seeing any, but at the same time, when I was a little kid, you never saw coyotes either. Now they're all over the place as well. Oh. Same when I go see my mom, go to see my mom. Now they are, yeah, they are everywhere. I wonder if it's, they took off here a little later than they did in the Southeast. You know how it's in the Southeast, it's all gloom and doom. Oh Yeah. Yeah. So, well, there's a ton of people that hunt them. They're allowed to kill two or four birds or whatever it is. Everybody does it. It's a way of life down in the South. And the birds, I don't know if, if a turkey can get smart. I might get killed for saying that. 
But I don't necessarily think turkeys are very smart animals as much as hunters want to make them out to be. They just know how to respond to pressure. Yeah. You know, we had one last year at our shop, or not even last year. Yeah, last year I had him in my other building. But uh, last week we had um, a Jake pecking at himself in the mirrored window in the front of our building. (laughs) Yeah. So how can you tell me that bird's smart? He's wanting to argue with himself for an hour. Yeah. I but still, I, mean, I think they're I think they're really cool animals. I love to eat them. Um, you know, maybe I'm not a, I'm not a dyed in the wool turkey hunter. I like I like eating the wild meat. We we had one of the birds prepared at a a local restaurant. One of our friends is the owner of a really cool new upstart company in Three Rivers, her new restaurant. And before hours, he prepared that bird for us. And there is uh, we got some cameras that were rolling for one of our buddies that has a, a, a hunting outfitter and podcast out of Texas. So that's going to roll out earlier, but you want to talk oh, what's about the name of that? The big honker, Jeff Stanfield and Andy Shaver. Oh, uh, cause They're I was just down in, in Texas. I was um, just on the Lone Star podcast. Okay. It was awesome. Awesome eating. I and mean, it was, it was amazing. So how did he do it? Well, um, there was a little miscommunication and he was wanting to prepare the whole bird. And then the guys ended up breasting it out and took the skin off. So it was kind of like a, you know, the the chef, that was kind of like cheating or whatever. He, he was kind of bummed. But what he ended up doing was just roasted it 320 for about four hours in a brine. So he brined it in, um, it was really simple. What was it? I can't remember. Simple brine, brined it for an hour, baked it for three hours at 320 and use the skin and uh render that down to make gravy it was unbelievably good oh yeah that's, that's low and slow yeah well and it's it's kind of like uh you wouldn't think it'd be that good just cooking it open i thought it was going to dry out and they cut yeah. it into a piece i'm like try it in five minutes it's probably going to be just as dry as any kind of turkey and it was tender it was delicious oh huh you know how wild turkeys have sharp breast and broad-breasted turkeys. I mean, like, domestic turkeys have a broad breast. Yeah. That was, that was developed at the, uh, at the research, uh, research lab where, in the town where I live, like, through genetic breeding, they made that. For the farms? Yeah, for, that's where the domestic, the conventional domestic and turkey was why bred. why so to increase meat content? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they've done a lot with fowl over the decades. I, uh, you know, with with chickens, they they they've got them like a modern chicken goes from hatch to slaughter in thirty days. Okay, uh, and it they're always struggling to keep enough leg strength in them so that they can walk you know because they just put on breast meat so fast yeah i uh used to do some i used to go to university of georgia and work with this guy he's a he was a quantitative geneticist and he I, he would i'd go down there to learn new tricks from him and one time i was down there he was meeting with this guy these guys from tyson and they were trying to figure out how to augment the the leg strength of these chickens because somebody from PETA had infiltrated one of their plants and documented these chickens that can't stand up. Why do you think, I guess, uh, is that, 
why is it that they have to be in such a hurry to grow them so quick? Right. I, I always say like in business, it only helps you one time. And it's that first time that it takes you from two months to raise a chicken to one month. It only works once. Right. Mm. Well, I, I, I don't know. And what the, you know, the one factor I know is, is feed conversion. They're trying to okay. maximize yeah. pound of pounds of gain per unit of caloric intake. Do you think the margins have really been eroded that much at the for the farmers where they have to do that to make money? Or do you think there's a greed factor at play somewhere along the chain? Yeah, I, I don't know what to say about that. Although there is a market for heirloom birds that yeah. that have a lot, of, still have a lot of leg meat and kind of are sharp-breasted. You know, like a lot of urban centers, there'll be people that raise chickens outside of. I had a friend that raised chickens and sold them in Portland for years, and I was just talking to on the phone to a guy the other day that does the same thing outside of D.C. We raised 80 of them last summer, these old breeds. We had a bunch of grasshoppers. We knew we were going to have a bunch of grasshoppers. So we, and I live on. How do you know you're going to have grasshoppers? They tend to come in, in a, a bad, once they start their population start to build, they tend to continue to build over a sequence of years. And so the summer of 21 was pretty bad. So we just, we kind of knew. And man, we raise those chickens almost entirely on grasshoppers the most of the summer. And then once big game season started, I just started going to this processor in town and uh, getting all the scraps and growing them in there. Cause by that, by fall that they had depleted the grasshoppers. And also this guy gave, gave me these three old U sheep friend of mine. And I shot them and barked the hide off of them and threw them and threw it in there. Chickens are like, Skip, they'll they, eat anything. Like they'll freaking right? eat anything. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. And those chickens, yeah, not nearly as much breast meat, but just a more thoughtful tasting, like more complex flavor. How old was the oldest bird when you processed it and ate it? Well, we processed them all at the same time. Okay. And it was, we got them in April and processed them in November. Yeah, so seven months. Mm -hmm. And was yeah. the meat tough, like people say, when they get mm -hmm. past six weeks? Mm -hmm. No, we are doing them on the grill. Nothing fancy, like beer can, mm -hmm. chicken, mm -mm, not tough at all. Very good. You're just eating a lot more leg meat. I like dark meat better anyway, so. Yeah. We've got a one of my buddies that helps take care of my, my wetland property an hour away has a, a girlfriend that raises chickens. She just got 800 chickens yesterday. She had 200. So there's a thousand chickens that she raises for eggs and they're doing it like a sustainable farming thing, her and her sister. And this girl's really smart. She's got a PhD from Notre Dame mm. and probably could have played on the LPGA tour. She was like team captain four years at Notre Dame for the golf team and uh, decided to get in like the sustainable farming business. And they've got this little greenhouse that's got the little rungs that the chickens can roost on and every couple of days they drag it to a different area of their property so they've got all the the grass to go and munch on bugs and shit in the in the dirt and all that and then it kind of regenerates itself so they're having a, a cool time with it it's really neat. is it uh, it's on wheels no they it's on skids so the things oh oh it looks like it's probably about 60 feet long and they drag it with a tractor just hook a cable on each corner on the front and just drag it yeah 
Yeah, I think they call that a chicken tractor. Okay. That's the first time I've seen it. It's pretty slick. Yeah. Boss shotgun shells. Yeah. Or you say shot shells. Mm, interchangeable. How, how did you come up with that name? Uh, the Lee, the marketing guy that I had engaged at the time was the one that came up with the, the name. I didn't really give a shit about the name or how it looked. I just had an idea on how I wanted to build a business model around a direct-to-consumer shotgun shell. You used so. to have different partners than you do now? <clears throat> well, now it's just me. I had... I, I started, this would have been in, in 18. So let's see, I started the business in 18. Uh, I got my, my ammunition manufacturing license in 2015 because I kind of had an idea that I wanted to goof around with it at some point. But I had a metal finishing company at the time that I was running out of Indiana for the RV industry. And uh, I had my like, main... Like building... Anodizing. That was oh. anodizing. So oh. aluminum uh, con conversion coatings for aluminum for wear resistance and corrosion resistance. So I, I, I'm a third generation metal finisher. So my my grandpa got into electroplating in the 50s after he got out of the military down in Mississippi. And then eventually started his own business that my dad ended up working for. My dad started his own company, bought his father's business. And then I kind of repeated the same thing. So I'm third generation metal finisher. And uh, I had an anodizing company in Indiana. I sold and used all the money from that to fund the upstart for this ammunition thing. What's, what's, an what's anodization? Anodizing is where you you basically corrode aluminum in a sulfuric acid-rich environment. So it's like rusting steel. But because you're doing it with controlled amounts of electricity in a controlled environment full of sulfur you end up creating aluminum oxide and like rust is iron oxide. And what that is, it's the metals um, natural way of giving up electrons to neutralize itself. So it no longer passes current. So when you don't pass current, you can't, the metal quits corroding. So like your brake lights on a rusty pickup truck, when they quit working because it's rusty, that's because that metal became inert. So rust looks ugly, but if you do it to aluminum and do it, with DC current and sulfuric acid, you can get this honeycomb structure that grows out of the surface like like honeycomb. And you can fill that with different colored dyes to make it purple or blue or green or whatever you'd like. Or you can turn the current up to a really, really high current concentration and grow that honeycomb structure so it's really, really tight and is harder than tool steel. So like your AR-15 receivers that don't wear or scratch, that's hard-coated aluminum. So it can be that can be dyed black. So it's a functional and decorative finish. So what we were doing for the RVs was the landing gear jacks that level the, the motorhomes and campers yeah. that sit outside. We were I, I set the business up inside that manufacturing company, and I had a contract where they could buy me after three years of running the operation. And we got the thing up and running, and in 14 months they bought me. So I was just going to work my main job at the family business that I owned that I bought for my my family. And after about a week, my wife said I was driving her nuts and I needed to find another job. So I said, well, cool, I'm going to start making shotgun shells because my son at the time um, was really taking an active interest in getting into duck hunting and goose hunting. And I had made ammunition for him and I had to shoot two years prior because he's just a little guy. Um so one thing led to another, and I, I, with our manufacturing company, I do a lot of work with a company called McMaster Car. 
they sell everything, nuts and bolts and bearings and pumps and you name it. And they're always a little bit more expensive, but their customer service is phenomenal. If you have a, 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 a motor burn up, instead of call the manufacturer, you know, get your RMA number, this, that, you call the guys you bought it from, they'll send you another one right away and they handle all the warranty work. So I love the customer service there. And knowing that, you know, uh, at that time, Dollar Shave Club had just sold for a billion dollars um, by, I want to say it was Gillette bought them. One of the other, or Unilever, one of the big companies bought them and they weren't even profitable yet. And Vice Golf Ball was coming on the scene, kind of giving Titleist a, you know, a run for their money with these direct-to-consumer markets. So I did some digging and realized that there's very limited uh, regulation on shipping ammunition over the mail and selling it over the internet. So I had this idea and, you know, conversations with uh, a goose hunting outfitter led me to to Lee and, uh, you know, he, he agreed to do some of the work and, um, Lee, yeah. is this Lee? What's his last name? Chose. Yeah. So he's a, he's kind of a, like a famous photographer, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah I remember digging into you guys a little while back and realizing. So I, I, I got a, I got a hold of him through, you know, a series of intermediate, you know, guys and, you know, he was going to, uh, contract to name the company and all that stuff and in lieu of him doing work you know as a as a vendor to me he asked if i would give him some of the company so i was feeling generous that day and and we structured a deal together that you know at the time seemed to work then we started growing this business and i you know took care of all the manufacturing and all the finance and you know funded everything which ended up turning into second mortgages on my house and, you know, liens on everything I'd previously owned outright and all that shit. And, uh, you know, here we are a couple of years later. I mean, just in the recent past, we've gone through some, some partnership disagreements and, you know, the, the Lee and then Zach are no longer with the company. Um, so we're working through that whole thing right now and it's kind of a stressful process, but that's the way business goes. Right. So. You seem to be taking it in stride. I would not. I'd be pulling my hair out. I, well, I'll this has been going just, on for six months, and you know, it's there's a whole episode on that, and I don't really want to. <laughs> no, it, but, yeah, but you can imagine how how that kind of stuff can go. So, yeah, how do you make a BB? Well, there's a lot of different ways, but we've got these really slick machines that the old fashioned way of making lead shot was to melt it up, drop it a couple hundred feet, and as that molten pellet falls through the air with it being lead and it's high density and affinity to like each to like itself more than anything else as that pellet's dropping uh the surrounding air you know kind of molds around it and it 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 likes itself so it rounds out and slowly cools until it hits the bottom of a, a tub of water at the at the very bottom of that tower what we do they call it a shot tower huh they call is that a called a shot tower yeah it's called a shot tower Okay, I've heard yeah. of that. So the, the newer technology way of doing that is um, you, a side note, but have you ever seen The Hunt for Red October with Sean Connery? That yes. submarine. Okay, that submarine was like the most feared thing in the world with that movie because it was a silent sub that they couldn't detect its movement because it didn't have a propeller. It right. worked on a principle called MHD, which was magnetohydrodynamics. MHD, Magneto Hydrodynamic Drive. 
And what they what the the Russians figured out back in the '60s was that if they could any any material will carry an electrical charge, and if you put the current to a material at the right frequency and amplitude, you can cause it to move. So that's how they they were able to move the water with a bunch of power with Hunt for Red October, and that's the way that my shot makers. Um, operate. They came out of Ukraine. Um, I've got six of them. And the way it works is you melt the metal down, the bismuth. So we'll alloy bismuth and tin, and we'll use those magnetohydrodynamic pumps to move the the metal into like an upper and lower chamber. So you pump the, the metal up. There's a waterfall that you can adjust the height. And then in this chamber, it's consumed as the shut's poured. So you'll put in three or 400 pounds at a time and then dose it, you know, about 30 pounds. You're putting in liquid alloy? Of yeah, we alloy it offline and then we pour it. So it's only okay. 450 degrees. So it's not terribly dangerous. So in the upper chamber, there's a tube with a die, a little nozzle that's at the at the bottom. So you're you're holding your liquid level constant with the upper chamber. And then the metal would want to come out that little nozzle. There's another set of those magnets on it. And with AC current, that's always making a sinusoidal wave, right? Up and down, up and down, alternating back and forth. The frequency drive can chop the bottom current and drop it out. So all we're seeing are the high spots, okay? So with the frequency drive, we we pulse that. So as that metal drops out of that tube, the frequency is kind of acting like a blotter where it, it holds it and then it collapses the current, lets it drop, holds it, lets it drop. So it's doing that roughly 160 times every second. Because bismuth doesn't quite have the density that lead does, as it's falling through the air, it needs a little bit of help to round itself out. So we drop it through about a one inch thick layer of argon because argon is heavier than the surrounding air. That rounds it into a ball and then it it's, uh, falls through misters that chill it. So by the time it drops about four feet, the pellets hard. Wow. So we're able to take, do like, You must have taken chemistry 201. Uh, yeah, I think I might have <laughs> at some point in my life. But no, honestly, I grew up in my dad's factory, right? So uh, all of the, the electrical stuff and tinkering, all that, it was all on-the-job training, really. Wow. I had to go get a degree in order to come back to the company, but I got it in finance. How fast is this stuff getting kicked out? Like, is it like a five-gallon bucket out of each of these contraptions every well, they hour? Well, they run so many pellets per second. So if you're going to make a number one shot, it's going to fill up the tray a lot faster than a number nine. So it's it's pellets per hour or however it goes. But you got to figure the way we, we produce, each machine can make enough shot for um, a shell about every second to second and a half when oh. we're running. So we we dry the shot off, you know, just because it's cooled in water. Then I tumble it on each other, the pellets. I put them in a in a like a fifty five gallon barrel size metal tumbler that we rotate, and that smooths everything out. Then it goes across the shop and it goes into a, a plating line where we put the copper on top of it, and oh. then from there it goes to get loaded. What's the purpose of the copper? Um. Well, what it. What it does for bismuth is it it kind of puts a, a shell on the pellet that is like an M&M, right? It's really, really thin layer, uh, only about half the thickness of a sheet of paper, about a mill and a half thick. And 
when the shots accelerated down the, the barrel, um, as the powder is ignited and the gases expand, the pellets at the very bottom want a dent because the metal's relatively soft. Um, so this helps give it a little bit of cushion. So over unplated shot, when you shoot your pattern at, at 40 yards, you're going to pick up about 8% more pellets inside a 30-inch circle at 40. And then because it's got that smooth surface that um, if you look microscopically at a pellet, it's not very smooth, even though it appears to be with the naked eye. When you plate something with copper in the acid sulfate bath, it the low areas fill in first. So like if you look at like the peaks and valleys, it'll eventually fill all those in and then it's nice and smooth. And because the copper is harder than bismuth, when it hits tissue, there's less drag. So it kind of goes through like a molly coated bullet or, or it's slicker. But then it still has the, the softness to deform and dump its energy into the intended target. So it's it doesn't blow all the way through. It is creating trauma. So you can take a bismuth pellet and go up two sizes with like a steel shot. And that's going to be a, the approximate size of the wound channel. It increases. Oh, okay. So what we've most recently smaller, done. Like, smaller BB, bigger hole. Well, smaller BB, bigger hole because of the deformation. But because of the increase in density, the smaller pellet care it it has the same or approximate equivalent energy as a pellet two times or two shot sizes larger. But because it's traveling through the air with a smaller cross section, it doesn't slow down as much. So your downrange energy is better. And because you can fit more small pellets in a shell than you can big pellets, you're you're delivering more energy to the target. So it's oh, a higher okay. probability of hits. And that's sure. how we get cleaner kills. Okay. In terms uh, of size, does that mean you you know you could use a size eight with bismuth? What a size six steel shot would? Uh, thereabouts, or you know that that used to be where we were at. But um, it's safe to say, like for upland guys, whatever you shoot in lead, you can shoot the same thing with a copper plated bismuth pellet. If you shoot like nickel plated or copper plated lead, then you need to go up one size. Because copper has the same effect on lead than it that it does on bismuth. But the real the real reason, do you guys know why copper plating was invented on lead? No. So this goes back to like 1920, early 1920s. What the the ammo manufacturers realized is before plastic wads, everything was using felt or horsehair or cardboard gas seals. So uh when the propellant would be lit the gas would leak around those the wads and then the heat and pressure was fusing copper pellets together. So they'd travel through the air like double or triple and they would stick. So um, yeah, like a melted bag of whoppers. Yeah. And I've done it. I've got some 1960s vintage uh, uh, paper hauled uh, paper wad lead that I shot ballistic gel with and saw that exact phenomena happen. Mm. So anyway, what happened was the guys from Winchester, ended up putting a barrier layer on copper because during heat treating, when people are, are uh, uh, either nitriding or carburizing uh, steel, if you put a layer of copper over it, it acts as a stop off. So it won't let that, that hardness penetrate. Same thing with um, the lead and gas. It wouldn't allow the pellets to fuse. So it was developed to keep the pellets from sticking together. But then they realized later on that it had an actual performance benefit in the field because there wasn't as much feather pull as the pellets were going through birds. 
there must have been a point where they got around that problem without the copper because yeah they can the plastic wad okay gotcha yeah yeah the pedals around it protected the shot from all those gases that were oh. wanting to use it together because you had to have the heat as well as the pressure okay but anyway yeah so as far as as far as like that lead inner lead to steel interchange and a lot of it depends on on shooting range and distance because if if guys are in a shooting you know geese at really long distances beyond decoy range 40 50 yards you can actually go like three shot sizes smaller because our stuff carries the energy a little bit better and there's a enhancement that we just came out with at the end of last year that by adding a buffer a biodegradable buffer um we're able to protect the pellets even more and what we're what we're seeing is um last year we shot a lot of high speed photography like 180,000 frames per second at uh pattern boards and ballistic gel and uh what we realized is the first pellet that came into view on the screen would go the deepest in ballistic gel and the very end pellets and the shot string would come in at the very end and, and go the shallowest. And that was because we deformed the pellet during that setback when the shell was fired and running down the barrel. So by adding that, that biodegradable buffer, that acted as a cushion. So there's nowhere for those pellets to go. They're, they're protected from each other when it's lit, when the shell's lit. So we were able to cut that that distance of deepest to shallowest pellet by one third. So we then took it in the field and tested it. And the the lethality is the the gap for people that have shot steel and switched to bismuth, that delta in performance increase is again the same for bismuth to this new buffered shell. Oh. So it's really kind of slick. So once we realized it worked that well, we had to come up with wad designs that we could manufacture across all calibers and gauges, you know, and, and shell lengths. Because all that we could commercially buy is a two and three quarter 12 gauge wad. So <clears throat> I talked the bank into giving me a million dollars and I bought an injection molding machine and I have tools being made so we can make our own wads now that have a, the plastic will have a, a chemical mixed into it that's like a fertilizer or food for microbes to chew on the plastic and fart out methane gas. So over three to five years in a, a oxygen-free environment, like tilled under a farm field or or over decaying under decaying matter in in a, a prairie or at the bottom of a swamp, um, the wads will dissolve and disappear, go back to mother nature. Well, you have the only biodegradable. No, there's wad. other companies out there that are using different technologies of bioplastics. And the interesting thing is, these bioplastics have been around for over thirty years. Just no one's ever done anything with them. So there's a few manufacturers that are using like a true bioplastic that supposedly breaks down um, in short order, but they're really, really brittle. And when the, the wad leaves the barrel, the wad pretty much disintegrates. So you don't get the patterning uh, performance that you would. And I'm, I can't really get behind making a product that has to compromise performance. So being that, you know, this earth is a few billion years old, you know, three years versus, you know, six months to 12 months. And the whole scope of time is kind of a sacrifice. I think I'm, I'm comfortable moving forward with, um, for en enhanced performance. Yeah. Do these you ones, know, does the other technology, does it have to be anaerobic with that? Yeah. Same thing. Well? Oh, okay. yeah. But in, in anaerobic and then microbe rich. So these, these biopolymers were meant to, and it's kind of, it's kind of stupid if you ask me where these biopolymers were 
meant to degrade when they're in a microbe rich environment, like a landfill. And I'm thinking, well, if it's in a landfill, it's already too late. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's kind of dumb, right? Yeah, I agree. So, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So Matt, you got any questions right now? If not, I'm going to move on to another topic, but no, please, uh, go ahead. Um, well, it's not a different topic, same topic, but a different component. When you when so that some of this technology is geared towards better performance in terms of wound loss. Yeah, you could be you could characterize it that way, right? In terms of what loss? Wound loss. Yeah, yeah, crippling. How do you feel about? improving the technology in terms of making hunters more lethal we, well you know what i, I mean there's a i know exactly what you mean yeah. and i think i think 50 percent. that's a safe number 50 percent of the improvements people experience by shooting our product are directly related to the performance benefits of that denser pellet the other half, I believe, is directly attributed to the conversation that we have being a direct-to-consumer company, and now we're going on our fifth year in business, but we really, really engage our audience and encourage people to pattern their shotguns and experiment experiment with different chokes. And I had one of my buddies tell me in 2019, he said, man, I think you had more people shooting cardboard in their backyards in the last 12 months than people have done in 30 years. And I, I kind of shrugged it off, but like, you got to have the conversation, tell these guys, you know, it, you can have the best shotgun shell in the world and you hit it with a fringe of a, of a pattern, whether it's tungsten or lead or steel or whatever, you're still going to create a crippled bird. So having the accountability there is one thing, but getting people to see visual representations of what their pattern looks like at various distances with various chokes is what's creating better success in the field. because. People think, oh, I shoot at 30 yards. Well, then you step off 30 yards and, you know, they're like, no, I, I 30 yards is actually 50 yards in reality. So that people learning how to gauge distance, people actually getting out and saying, hey, when I aim at the center of this cardboard, I'm shooting a foot and a half high. So they have to learn how to either get their cheek down or adjust the fit of their gun or experiment with different chokes or whatever it is. But it's the proficiency of the the shooter by them actually doing some of the work that's leading to the successes in the field. Yeah, that makes sense. So One I'm, thing not, I, I'm not I'm not going to say it's all product 100%. We got the best thing going. No, you you still got to put your work in. And I know that we probably benefited some of the other manufacturers as well because you know we can't make enough ammunition to supply the whole world. Um, that's just not realistic. But there's guys that maybe can't afford or really don't like what we have our message or anything like that. But maybe it got them thinking like. Hey, let me go see what my gun does with this shell and this choke out in the backyard before hunting season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I, I got, I spent a, a little bit of time thinking about technology and hunting and I need to do more. There's, if you take it to the limit, like, let's say you developed a, sh- uh, a shot that what, reliably killed geese at 500 yards, you know, yeah. at some level, 
I worry that it becomes not hunting anymore. It, you know? it kind of turns in like what social media has turned in with AI that everyone's afraid of. Like, you, And actually, if you look at like our little business model, we're going backwards in time. Like I'm going, instead of this new tungsten technology, trying to get people to spend exorbitant amounts of money, I'm kind of modeling what we're doing over Winchester back in the olden days. You know, we've got a product that kind of functions like lead. Uh, we're pulling off a 1920s technology of, you know, putting copper on a pellet, uh, but albeit in a different fashion with a different substrate. We're promoting the use of smaller shotguns, two and three quarter, 12 gauge. Oh, wow. So you don't velocity. make a three inch shell or a three inch? We do. Okay. We do. Uh, that started in our second year in business, um, but we don't make a three and a half. So we're going, we're moving at lower velocities, you know, old technologies, uh, just with uh, a little bit of a twist. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not all about the new, 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 new. And like you say, like with technology and hunting, I think maybe it's time we put less technology into hunting. Yeah, I'd agree. I use a state-of-the-art bow, but I still don't shoot at stuff that's more than 40 yards away. I'm like using the technology to reduce my risk of wounding something, not right. to to give myself an edge where I'm taking longer I, shots. I was I went to Grand Valley State. You're familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one, uh, one of my brothers went there. I was reintroduced to, to hunting um in 2002, 2002, 2001, 2001. And that was right when Heavy Shot was coming on the scene. And my buddies were talking about these shells that you could shoot number sixes at geese. And they were $40 for 10 of them. And it was a two and three quarter inch shell. So I bought a box of them. And then I also bought a box of three and a half inch tent number two steel. Uh, uh, what was that stuff called? Fast steel. And I remember going through every single one of those number six heavy shots. And then I was left with steel and I was shooting cripples. And, you know, the, the birds are still looking at you or running from you when you're trying to go get them out of the field. And like, I went through that whole mental anguish, like probably five or six times between 2002 and 2018. I hate cripples. Like the worst thing for me is to watch a bird fly away with one of its legs dropped, knowing that you just ended up, you know, feeding that thing to coyotes or whatever. Mm -hmm. So um, that was one of the inspirations behind coming up with something more lethal. And I knew that trying to place this product into co conventional retail channels would be fought with all kinds of criticism, negative selling, and uh, me getting squeezed out for shelf space. So I thought- Oh, wait, wait, you got to back up with that stuff because I don't understand. I don't understand business well enough to oh, understand okay. that. Well, um, they were- okay. Did you get that, Matt? Or am I, am I just being dense or did you get that? I would like a better- uh, Okay, a S simply put- if I came out with this new shotgun shell that I thought would really change the landscape, Cabela's and Bass Pro wasn't going to make their aisles any longer to accommodate my boxes on the shelf. So what they would end up doing is either want me to sell it to them for a margin that I wouldn't be able to grow my business or stay in business or work a better deal with one of their other distributors or manufacturers to save margin for that or improve their margins and squeeze me out. I mean, that's just how it is like yeah you know, unless you got a patent or something like that well i i have patents on it well then but how I could this how could their buddies 
produce what you produce for less than. <laughs> um, they they really can't. But what I'm saying is, when you're de- when you're working with a ten thousand pound gorilla, you really can't compete. They would end up cutting a deal. Say, okay, well, we're not going to give you our premium waterfowl shells at this price, but we'll give you all your target and trap loads that you sell 50 times more of. We'll give you a better deal on that. They they would end up, it, it would be a race to the bottom, right? Whenever you've got competition of two like products, the first guy that cuts the, that cuts the price ends up ruining the market for everybody else. Uh, okay. So, so even if you had a superior product, they would just lower their price to compensate. Well, and then, I mean, how many times do you hear big box if you know anyone that's ever had the best experience with all the purchasing people in a big box retailer in the outdoor space that has that that retailer has done everything for their business to grow it, let me know because I would really like to have a conversation with a guy to change my mind. But if you ask me, the retailers want to make more margin than what is allowed in ammunition. So I would be working for pennies while they're making dollars and I've got to cover all the insurance, the overhead. I've got to keep up with ordering all the supplies, keeping the machinery running, all that other stuff. And it's just not worth it in yeah. my mind. So we yeah. we said, well, let's we need go. brand allegiance to be yeah. immune. So we said that's what Matt and I are here to provide. <laughs> let's go, let's go direct. Let's go direct to the consumer. We can cut out the middleman, and then I can be more competitive on price because I can offer a premium product that is less than the top brand name steel products. And these guys are actually going to save money. And we didn't promote that because if you ever looked at any of our advertising, we never ask for anything. It's always inspirational or cool photos or, or a really clear message about who we are. And I would rather take a slower growth than getting in over my head. And it, it went, it, I got in over my head and I think maybe I still am, but I'm still swimming. Mm -hmm. you have some great information about lead some you have some great stats on lead oh it's late in the day let's see what i can do um i know that it only takes one or two pellets for a tiny little grouse or quail to die if they find them we know that from lead poisoning lead poisoning we know from that, ingesting them. Yeah, for grit, mm-hmm. right? To help digest yeah. their food. Yeah. And don't ask me how these little things can find the lead pellets, but they do. We that got, blows me away. They'll get lead poisoning from that. They find them, man. Like if you're out in in a field where quail are in. No, no, in, no. Not that it. Not that they find them. I'm more amazed, which is amazing as well. I'm amazed that one or two would BBs would kill them. Yeah. I used yeah. to walk around with split shot between my cheek and gum. So did I. Who didn't what, as a kid? How did that? How did? Well. You were yeah, old that enough might, that it might, didn't mess you up. Is that Too what bad. it is? Yeah. I, well. Yeah. So, so number one, these little birds are finding it through ingesting it and it's killing them. We know what it's doing with bald eagles that are feeding on on the, the carrion and carcass is left over from hunting you know yeah tell us about the literature on that the literature or the, uh, yeah the scientific literature. like tell us about what what's known about that well i mean i, like, I don't have any of this stuff i'm kind of on the spot here but but 
the thought that when lead hits bone, it fragments, it basically blows up. And if you look at any x-rays of like these eagles that are being found dead with lead in them, there's little tiny shards of of lead in the birds that they've ingested. And same thing on carcasses of, of big game animals. And I'm the furthest thing from a liberal hippie, but I very much believe in this lead thing being really, really nasty. And it's not because I own an ammunition company that doesn't make lead ammunition. We I wish it, I wish we could get to a part where a point where as hunters we could care about things like this without a disclaimer. I mean, well, pe- people, yeah, people are going to be forced to care about it because the bans are coming. They really are, and and I just I, I, yeah, and I would argue if, if, if that whether you're on the right or the left, you should welcome it if it's that catastrophic. I mean, like. Whether you're on the right or the left, you should care about wildlife if you're a hunter. Well, I guess I say that because I have, in full disclosure, I'm an ammunition manufacturer that doesn't do lead. And I said early on, I don't want lead around my people. I don't Mm -hmm. want it in my factory. And I don't want it in the environment. And and, and I'm not going to say in that particular order. There is a place for lead shot. Trap ranges, sporting clays courses that have remediation policies, that kind of thing. I don't have a problem with it. I have a source type situation. You can pull the stuff out of the ground and recast the shot or sell it for ballast for sailboats or whatever you want to do. But putting it out into rivers, lakes, streams, uplands and public land and even private land for that matter. Like, I don't know how you guys feel about having, you know, corn grown on top of lead, like, does it make its way into the corn? I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But if we can eliminate that, then we don't have to worry about it. But anyway, there's been two cases. One of them was a sinker company a couple of years ago, probably three or four years ago, Water Gremlin. They had major problems with um, the employees accidentally tracking lead home on their clothes and shoes, and their little kids were were getting poisoned. Oh, Um, Another like really, 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 really big uh, ammunition manufacturer just in February. Um, There's some bad stuff going on with these people working in the lead department that have kids like with learning disabilities. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a big one, right? Is like it's it's very tightly linked with cognitive decline in young kids, right? And, and, And I guess when people are older, like adults, it doesn't bother them. And it's not that it's in the employees' bloodstreams. It's being picked up late and walking across the factory floor, you know, and, and maybe mm-hmm. you, know, you change your clothes. It doesn't, it's kind of spooky stuff. Um, you know, they used to joke with like the the dumb kids in the classroom, like, did you eat lead paint chips? You know, I think lead paint was banned in like the mid seventies or something. Um, but yeah, it's a real thing. It's a real wow. thing. Is there any, bringing it back to maybe a hunting topic, is there any literature, anything that, has to do with lead affecting hunting dogs or upland upland dogs. There's a bunch of, we've got one of our buddies that used to work for um, uh, resource uh, groups closely tied in with the Michigan DNR. And there's all kinds of studies and stuff that he's going to help us go back in his log and, and kind of give us some of that information to revisit. And I guess the biggest thing is like, I don't want to be the guy that's going to start railing against um, lead because you're going to be like, oh, well, yeah, clearly he has a vested interest. Well, as a business owner, maybe I do, but that's not why I'm going to go on that 
and take that approach and say, we got to get rid of it. It's not for personal reasons or selfish reasons. I mean, I started this company five years ago and it's put me further in debt than than I ever was before I started the business. And I don't know if I'll ever see the end of it, but it's a passion for conservation and fewer cripples and 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 the environment that um, I really care about. So I guess that's why I have to be cautious with like when I qualify statements, I'm going to say, you know, in full disclosure, this or that. But yeah, uh, well, unless anyone thinks that concludes that Brandon's a, a anti-lead zealot, just recall that I'm the one that asked the question. No, no like the thing is, <laughs> I don't I don't want to get some kids sick and have yeah. my company run out of business over a lawsuit and that over something that I knowingly held my employees' hands and walked them into that in front of that bus. I'm in the factory just as much as anybody else. I'm pouring metal. I'm I'm playing with all this stuff. I my family my my employees are like my family. I don't want to get them hurt, and I want to avoid you know the litigious nature of what human beings have evolved into you know in recent generations. Like don't want it. You had some. You told me one time about how much lead is out there in the woods. Well, yeah, I think depending on depend if. And this is all like just back of the napkin, but I would say it's safe to say that one of you know your larger ammunition producers are manufacturing and pouring roughly fifty thousand pounds of of lead shot per day in that neighborhood. So that's like that's like a semi load of lead, and maybe some of it goes to the gun range, um, maybe some of it goes to sporting clays, but you know a lot of it's going to go in farmers' fields and public land right? Yeah, it just is. Yeah. So what number is that? And how much does that start adding in time after time, year after year after year? And we know that it becomes relatively inert in the soil. So if we've got hunting lands that, well, maybe here's the easy answer to the question. Maybe these grouse and all these little critters are finding the lead pellets because that land's been hunted on for 120 years. And there's maybe just a lot of shot out there. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe just maybe that that lead problem is never going to go away. Maybe the the land so contaminated with that that these little birds are always going to peck that stuff out of the soil if they dig down an eighth of an inch or whatever. But we got to be somewhere on the dose response curve that's not saturated. I yeah, would guess. you can't just stick your head in the in the sand and pretend the problem doesn't exist anymore or it's too far gone. We might as well just ride it on the backside. Like that's not an answer. You always yeah have yeah a little bit more right yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nicely put. Uh, okay, so we got to, you know, we want to support you, your company. And um, so I got to ask you these questions. Sure. Where are you at with, what do you do in terms of advertising? Do you use influencer advertising or TV? influencer advertising like paying people to promote your product yeah no. or giving them no. all kinds of free shot and stuff like that no there's there's people that like like podcasts that we we sponsor and oh really yeah and that's okay. worked out well because um one it gets us on the podcast where we can answer questions and kind of you know tell our story to the masses um that's legit yeah uh it's we don't but we don't like pay the girls with the big boobs and the bikinis to go out and kill shit like okay. that you know like i hate that i think it's disgusting um like obviously very very close friends of mine i'll give them some shotgun shells or some prototypes or this or that and get field reports back but 
there's never like a script or like, here, we're going to give you this. And then we're going to want this, 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 and this in trade. That's not like it. So, and the other thing that we don't do, because I firmly believe in the first amendment is whatever people hear, um, good, bad, indifferent out on the, the interwebs is the straight story. So if there's a guy that said I was a complete asshole to him on the phone, maybe I was because he pissed me off, you know, but as far as like product performance and function, when we developed a product that we really believe in and you tell the story and you, you, you kind of give the education on patterning and, you know, shot selection and everything else, um, it kind of turns into a really organic, uh, product that doesn't need that fake bullshit to try to sell shells. And to be honest, like I work for my money. I don't need anything easy and like, oh, well, the easy thing is just pay this influencer, this or that or the other. I think it's gross. And I think that the consumer is becoming wiser and wiser to that method of marketing. Is there, are there any nonprofits boss supports? Yeah. I mean, we're big time with, um, with Delta and DU. Um, like when you look at scalability of the company, I think we, with, with Del with Ducks Unlimited, we ended up signing the, um, the biggest advertising deal in the history of their company. Like our oh. little company. Yeah. Oh. So, so again, like, is that advertising? Yes. But that all goes to nonprofit. Um, there's other groups with some like female conservation. They're, they do some good stuff, but you should tell them to lay off the R3. The R3. <laughs> the recruitment retention reactivation. So. Oh, well, I, I think you, you got to weigh the good with the bad, right? And and maybe yeah, but I, yeah, and we don't need to dwell on this because I dwell on it on every topic, on every podcast. But just with duck hunting in particular, it just cracks me up. that It's just so blatant that that's uh, like a wink and a nod to the companies that give them money, that it's ridiculous. like. All of the fighting over ducks and the competition for ducks and places that people on my podcast used to be able to go in the Southeast, for example, where they used to be able to go hunt for free and now it's $5,000 a year. You can't go to Manitoba anymore as a U.S. resident at, as of last year. You used to be able to go up there to, to last year. You go up there as long as you want and buy a tag over the counter. Now it's a draw and if you're lucky enough to to draw the tag, you got to go for their, there. You can only go for a week and they're and ducks unlimited's conclusion from all this is we need more hunters. <laughs> well, if you look historically at number of ducks, duck stamps sold, um, we're definitely not at the low point, but we're far away from the high point by about 30%. Yeah. That's, that's because in so much of the country, people of means have sucked up all the lay the duck out hunting opportunity for themselves. Yeah. But I mean, that's been going on. That's been going on since the, since the thirties and forties, the big duck clubs and all that whole thing. And, and the ducks are getting smart. They respond to pressure. You know, they, they, they are getting smarter and smarter. And now what's kind of funny in certain areas of the country that we, we get to visit, they don't, they no longer talk about how many ducks they kill a season they like to brag about how many ducks they're holding in their flooded corn at night. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I we don't need to la labor this, but I just cannot think yeah. about what's going on in the waterfowl hunting world in a serious, sober way, and conclude from that that 
the solution to the problem is more duck hunters. Well, no, I don't think it. I don't think it is, and I think that I think that the social media thing needs to change. I think that's probably negatively impacted every single sport in the eyes of the old school guys. Um, but at the same, well, time, yeah, I've been saying that it's like what I'm. Well, I hate it, and that's one thing that that's like a centerpiece of the hunt quietly movements sphere of concern is hunting social media but i've been saying that that shit's been around for over a decade i think it's time for something new well, i think there's that, always, that there's, shit's passe there's always been that influencer of a sort even back in the 80s when my dad would take me up to the todd farm uh the gmu there there's always what's a guy that, what's the todd uh, todd the farm? todd farm in allegan you know where okay. it used to be a major uh, resting area for migratory honkers, the the Canada's. And oh, is that, that where they? Is that was that a water treatment facility? No, it was a, it was an old mint farm. Okay, because somewhere around there, there was the Muskegon wastewater. Yes, that, that's yeah, that's that, what it's, I'm it's, of. Yeah. yeah, the Todd Farm is just a is just a different another one of the GMUs in Michigan, and that thing used to hold thirty five thousand honkers. You know, in, in the fall. And for our area of the state, that was a sizable number, but now they don't even hold 5,000 birds. There might've only been 1,500 birds there last year. Okay. Because they picked up and moved on because the people that run that property, you know, that they kind of started uh, catering more towards deer hunting and they didn't have the crops cut when the geese had moved through and then the birds found other places to go. But what I'm saying is there was always the guy that was would bullshit about the new decoy or the new gun or the new shell you know, just now with social media, we're privy to everyone's conversations, not just the jackass in the parking lot talking about the latest and greatest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can always tune it out. And that's kind of what I've done. Like, I don't really engage too much on on like the Instagram stories, reels, any of that crap, because it, it really infuriates me if I watch it too much. Yeah, well, that's I I've never been captivated by it, but it's still a huge part of the hunting zeitgeist, guys, particularly for young people. They think one that the, all one of the things that pisses me off is you've got like the 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 people that are anti-influencer, anti, you know, smiles and piles and that whole new method of what the, the newer generation does, but they hide behind anonymity. So they'll have different uh-huh. screens. Well, they'll they'll flame all these poor misguided youth, right? That are maybe they're doing it maliciously, maybe they're doing it because they don't know any better, maybe they're doing it because they want to be cool. But you've got a guy that that is that are smart, intelligent people that think like you and I, but they hide behind a fake screen name and don't want to be named, but yet they want to rail on these poor people. That only because f- I know people that have been the target of these anonymous. Uh, flamethrowers and that only emboldens those people to go even further and push the boundaries just to piss those guys off oh, so that's this interesting antagonistic approach of well i'm going to shame this guy on instagram because he's holding a tarpon out of the water or this guy's eating a raw turkey heart or whatever it is to try to embarrass these guys it means nothing to those people because that guy's hiding behind the anonymous screen name yeah, so I, say, I do. I do a little trolling myself from time hey, to time. But you, but you don't. But do my, my name, no, right. My name's right as there. Joe Shit the Ragman. Yeah. No, you're I, putting your name out there. I'm putting my name out there, and I'm doing it because 
I think it's sending us in the wrong direction. Yeah. You know? No, I agree. I agree. Um, uh, so last thing, unless Matt has any more, you got any more action items? Any I more? do have one question. Um, just, uh, Brandon, from your kind of experience in seeing the world of turkey hunting, upland game hunting, uh, waterfowl hunting, uh, do you see different issues within kind of the different, the different, um, I don't, I don't want to say sports, but just the different styles of hunting for all of that. Well, I think a common, I think the common one will be, would be access to, to hunting land, whether it's, you know, on, on bodies of water or, or state lands or whatever it is. I think that's, you know, we're under a huge threat there. Um, but I think like with, with uh the upland guys i think they're afraid of this lead ban um i think that they're they're they know that lead's bad but i think i think there's going to be a a large group that until they're forced to do something different they're going to continue to do what they're doing i know in the early days of steel people illegally shot lead because steel was so ineffective and you know some of these guys will say lead crippled more ducks than or steel crippled more ducks than lead ever will i think that that's that's BS, but you're going to have your holdouts. Oh, there. you so, do, huh? You do. You think mm-hmm. that you think that steel did not cripple more than lead? Well, I think maybe instantly. Um, lead is more lethal. Oh, I see. If you factor in the chronic the, effect the, of it, the then. second, third order effects of depositing lead in the environment probably has been to the detriment of all ecosystems. Yeah, I can say one thing definitively. Um, against le- uh, steel and that's way it's way harder on the teeth as Absolutely. a man who has three crowns and a missing tooth all from biting down on steel shot in yeah that's water that was that's another another issue that i didn't why i don't shoot tungsten i mean i can make any shotgun shell that i want for myself for virtually nothing because i've got you know millions of components laying around and one or two shells or or a case or two doesn't make any difference on the bottom line but i refuse to shoot that stuff it's too hard. I like my teeth too much. And with a bismuth pellet, you're going to, it's like lead. It's not going to, not going to crack a tooth. Mm. But Matt, to your, your point of, I think public land access is good, is going to be a continual. Oh, uh, Brandon went away. Um, no, he, oh, you went away for a minute. Maybe turn off your, turn off your, your video, would you? Me? You, yeah, you, you went away. Uh oh. Is it where was it? You were talking about public land access. Oh, all right. Well, the public land access is going to be a continual problem no matter what you're what you're hunting. Um, I think the water following situation, as far as like I said, an arbitrage like the stock market, I think that's going to correct itself in terms of the um the fanfare we see on social media platforms and all the stuff that discuss some of the old school, um, more dyed in the wool guys. Um, but I think unless, unless conservation groups and hunters individually really get their head around what's going on with migratory patterns to how birds respond to pressure. Um, a lot of outfitters, uh, kind of make a habit of, of shooting roosts back shooting ducks when they come into rest. And, and I think that's just a greed thing. I think they feed their egos on on killing limits, and I think they need to feed their checking accounts 
um, with satisfied hunters. So if it means two weekends before the end of the year or the season's winding down or whatever excuse these guys want to justify in their mind, um, back shooting roosts ends up making birds move. And they're going to eventually move to areas where no one's allowed to hunt them because it's going to be on private land or it's going to be in, in areas that no one has access to. Um, that goes right hand in hand with one of my fundamental axioms, which is if if hunting is going to perpetuate into the future and not become a rich man's, just a rich man's game, it's going to perpetuate for the workaday guy and gale. It's going to take hunters looking out for other hunters. It is. That's and what it would take. Well, there's guys like me, like say before I started boss, right? I'm a workaholic. I don't really get out and do DIY because I I didn't would allocate the time because I like working and spending time with my family more than I like taking off for two weeks and road tripping and doing the DIY duck hunt or pheasant hunt. So um, I preferred to be able to hook up with an outfitter that you could go and have your lodging taken care of. They can put you on the birds. You can go have a couple good hunts and you can get back to work. Is that the right way? Maybe, maybe not, but to each his own, right? But I think a lot of it's become with people locking up all these leases with farmers and, you know, couple that with the roost shooting and all the arguments that get aired out in the, the public space. Um, I don't think that's a good look for the sport, but it's going to take some well-heeled investors that are willing to weather a storm by trying to do a business model that teaches ethics and morals before it teaches smiles for piles. Mm. Yeah. I'm glad you're thinking about this stuff. That's awesome. To, to follow up with that, what if Upland Game Hunters specifically were to adopt or move away from lead without laws being passed, what do you think would have to happen? They just have to be willing to spend, depending on the shotgun shell that they're shooting, if they're shooting a premium lead shell, it's just an awareness piece to move into our product. Um, I mean, at the same token, uh, all the manufacturers have to do is say, we're not going to produce lead hunting ammunition anymore. Then would people shoot their quail with trap loads? Yeah, probably. But at the same time, um, it's a free market unless someone holds a gun to someone's head. As long as there's lead shot being made, people are going to end up shooting it one way or another, both legally, illegally, knowingly, unknowingly, whatever. Mm -hmm. Hopefully hopefully less. I I just like to think that a lot of people would, if they were educated about the issues, would do the right thing for their own future as a hunter. I think everyone says that, but a lot of times it's just lip service. Maybe it's a good talking point and conversation to make someone look like they they're respected. You know, um, yeah. I know a lot of people that say one thing and do another. It's a lot. It's it's it really. It's actually easier to live by your word because you don't have to worry about what bullshit story you told one guy or the next guy and how you can keep that that image up. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you there. I do lie once in a while. God, it just makes me sick to my stomach. Um, but it, yeah, I don't. I'm trying to get myself into. I'm trying yeah, but to minimize you know, the number number of times. Usually, when I lie, it's like it's just a. It, there's no. It's a victimless crime, but I still feel yeah. bad about it. Like a little white lie that Forrest Gump used to tell, or something that prevents me from getting prevent 
something that uh, prevents me from getting in trouble for some arbitrary thing. Understood. At work or whatever. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it is. There's there's a a lot to be said for telling the truth. Um. If Matt, anything else? Okay. I will mention that my favorite nonprofit, and this is a little egotistical, is one I co-founded, Brandon. It's called Hunters for Access. And what we do, it's now national. We support these little, and sometimes not so little, fish and game management agencies run programs that incentivize landowners for allowing public access. So awesome. in Michigan or in Montana, we have the block management program, 6 million acres in it. it used to be seven, but it's shrinking. And we raise money and buy appreciation gifts for ranchers and farmers and other large landowners that are enrolled in the program. And we also do work days. We got six day, six work days we're going to do this summer. We got uh, 60 some volunteers that said they, they, they'd be willing to come out and do a day of work. You know, I don't think we'll get that many, but anyway, that's what it's about. And if you wanted to support us, you could send us some ammo. We would, okay. we would review it for you in some way, make a funny little video that, yeah. you know, and then the rest of it that we didn't, if we maybe shoot a round or two, but we don't allow ourselves to take any free stuff from yep. anybody because we're trying yep. to stay pure. But then we'd right. au- we'd auction it off and donate the proceeds towards us. One effort. of the one of the things my my team and I discussed today is we're not allowed to advertise because we're gun related, and all the social platforms and forms of media are kind of anti two A, right? So what we're discussing doing is starting a foundation as a 501c3 and use that as the promotional side to raise the awareness on all the issues that we hold near and dear that can help us get our message out to more people. And one of the first thoughts that we're having is to use all of our apparel, like the hats and shirts and hoodies and all that stuff that we sell, take a hundred percent of those proceeds and use that as seed money into this foundation. And then through our VIP rewards program and like round up, like if people want to round up to contribute mm-hmm. to that, then we can find vehicles that are that align with our values of conservation, access, habitat, so on and so forth, and be the be kind of the leader in that. Because a lot of the no other ammunition company that I know of, um, besides what we spend in our Pittman Robinson, you know, or Robertson eleven uh, percent tariff really goes back to hunting and we can give product to nonprofits. We can give advertising dollars to nonprofits, but we're trying to come up with ideas on how we can be more, more intimately and directly involved with those groups that aren't the, the name brand, uh, you know, uh, companies or corporations. Yeah. I hope you decide to work on access because that's the P that there's a lot of people working on conservation. I mean, it's just, Hunters need a place to go. That's the big one. And not, I mean, I conservation, obviously, 
obviously is more important even than access, but nobody's working on the access. That's a slick idea that you guys have with uh, the farmer thing. You wouldn't believe how many states have these programs. Utah, Montana, South, North and South Dakota. I believe Michigan has one. Iowa, Illinois, Nebraska, Kansas. Kansas is starting a chapter of Hunters for Access. Um, well, that's cool because you know what happens all the time is uh, like for goose hunting. And goose hunters, I think, are some of the worst. Uh, the farmer gave me permission. Then another guy shows up. And then before you know it, there's people fighting in the farmer's field. And then they go crying back to the farmer. The farmer says, screw it. I'm not going to allow mm-hmm. anybody to on the property. But yeah. if you have like those type of state-run programs, I'm talking from the eyes of a waterfowler because I'm not really much of a deer hunter at all. Um, but, man, that's cool. That's almost like things were back in the 60s that my buddy used to tell me about where you could walk on a farmer's field or through a, a, a fallow field that he's got and kick up some rooster pheasants and not have to worry about asking permission or paying a lease or this or that or the other thing. Oh, that's exactly what we're going for. And we're also trying to reinstitute, reimagine the old way where it was a bang on the door, you know, but it's hard now because a lot of the hunting community lives in urban centers and they're not integrated into the rural communities where they want to hunt. So the idea here is we're providing the mechanism for people to come out and do a little bit of work and say thank you thank you for putting up with the bullshit thank you for yep. putting up with the hassle yep well and that, and that up roads out. and the litter and, and thanks you know and farmers love to talk over coffee at the local diner and that thing could spread like wildfire so yeah let's i'd like to i'd like to get involved with that that'd be cool that's cool okay. stuff i like that i'll send you a follow-up email you know for, cool. for one thing you could do is give us a little ammo that we could make a little video with yeah, and then absolutely auction it off and anything else but yeah i, I think it has legs i hope it has legs yeah i hope it has well like you say maybe we don't need more technology maybe we just need to rewind the clock a little bit and start acting and behaving as our parents and grandparents did yeah 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 anyway cool well thank you guys thank you Thank you, Brandon. It was fascinating. Awesome. We'll catch up with you guys later. All right. Good night. See you. How you been? Good. That was a that was a good podcast.